Let's take a moment and pray together before we look at the scriptures today. Lord God, we pray for your presence to be with us. Um, we live in a, an information age. Words surround us continually. And it's tempting for us to tune them out. What we need now is to hear some words that can actually refresh our souls rather than overload our brains. And so we ask that you would be with us and cause the Holy Spirit to write your word so deep in our lives that we are transformed and that tomorrow doesn't look the same as it would have if we hadn't heard the Spirit speak to us with power today about Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's still Easter. I know it's not Easter Sunday today, but the church has always observed Easter for really year-round. Every Sunday is a mini Easter celebration, and uh, the, the season called Easter Tide actually lasts through the Sunday of Pentecost, so uh, 50 days after Easter is still Easter. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off last week by saying that the resurrection of Christ has so much to say to people who are living under a shadow of fear. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about my week. On Thursday morning, I was meeting with a close friend who's still grieving and hurting over the shootings that happened here in Atlanta and all that they represent about what's broken in our world. While we were meeting, I uh, got news from a good friend of mine that his aunt and uncle and two cousins had been murdered in South Carolina. Maybe you've heard about those shootings as well. The following day, a close friend of mine passed away in Chicago. That's Thursday and Friday. Thursday afternoon, I got word from a friend that he had been diagnosed with a medical condition, still a mystery, and he said to me in a text, he is terrified. We live under a shadow in this world. The good news of the gospel is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has much to say to people who are living under a shadow of fear. That's especially clear in Mark's gospel of all the gospels. And you feel that promise with special force when you understand the background of Mark's gospel and when you soak in the ending of Mark's gospel. Mark was a disciple of Peter. Peter was preaching in Rome. Mark recorded Peter's preaching. That's the story we're told from the ancient church of how Mark's gospel came to be, the Holy Spirit giving this as a gift, not only the preached word, but the written word. During the time that Peter was preaching and Mark was writing, Roman emperors were putting pressure on believers in Jesus. And sometimes that pressure spilled over to the Jewish community as well. To stay quiet about faith in Jesus, to renounce faith in Jesus, to say that the Savior is really the emperor, not Christ. He's the Lord, not Christ. And in that atmosphere of persecution and pressure with death hanging around every conversation and every corner, Mike, Mark writes for a people just like you and me, if you've ever 
felt the presence of this shadow of fear and death in your life, if you've ever felt pressure to stay silent about your relationship with Christ, if fear has distracted you from faithfulness, you are not alone. The Holy Spirit gave, through Mark's words, Mark's gospel, this promise that Jesus gives new life and courage and strength to people like you and me. Let's hear today a reading of the ending of Mark's gospel and a verse that will tell us something about the faithfulness of God through his word. Stacy, will you read for us? Thank you. Today's scripture, first from Mark 16. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And from Mark 13, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. You're watching a video and you get the buffering signal. <laughs> like maybe you're trying to worship during a pandemic and so you're sitting in front of a screen, worship mediated through the internet, right? And, and you're, you're trying your best to give glory to God, to sense the presence of your maker and suddenly you're like, what went wrong? Suddenly, you're, you're ripped out of worship mode and into tech mode. What happened? Or you're, you're watching a movie with your family, and, and you're kind of engrossed in the story because you're like, what is this new Mary Poppins thing anyway, and how does it turn out? Because it's so much like the original one, but it's so different at the same time. And what, wait a minute, I'm ripped out of the story world, and I'm now into question mode. What went wrong? Why is it buffering? Who used up all the internet? Um, you get ripped out of the story and you start answering a totally different kind of question. The same thing happens to us when we're reading the end of Mark's gospel. We read Mark 16 verse eight about these women who went to honor Jesus by anointing him, recognizing that, that they loved him. And that they once had trusted that he was the Messiah. Now he's lying in a tomb, they think. They get there, everything's turned on its head. And then verse 8 says they, they ran away. They fled from the tomb. An angel had told them to go share the good news with Jesus' disciples that he is not here. He will meet you in Galilee. He is alive again. And instead of obeying, they run away. Why? They say nothing to anyone. Why? Because they are afraid. It's really important if Mark's gospel ends on that note. It raises some really important questions for us. It reminds us in a powerful way that Mark's gospel was written for people who were afraid and for whom fear 
meant silence. So if you're wrestling with that, you're not the first person ever. That's a very powerful signal being sent to us by verse 8. But it's hard to feel the full force of that ending if suddenly you're wondering, wait, what, what went wrong here? Because you're looking at a Bible that does something like this. You're not intended to be able to read these words here. I just want to highlight kind of a pattern. If you're reading an ESV Bible, then you come to the end of Mark's gospel and you see this, um, this kind of note here that says some of the earliest manuscripts don't include Mark 16, 9 through 20. In other words, in some early manuscripts, the ending of the gospel is, they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid, period. That's it. But then in the ESV, you would find printed more verses, verses 9 through 20. And my little red circles here indicate that, that in the ESV, those verses are going to be contained in double brackets. That's the way of the, the, the editor's way of saying we're printing these verses here, what we don't believe they're really part of Mark's gospel. Well, that's the ESV. What would happen in another common translation, the NIV? You come to something very similar, though in this case, there's going to be a big black line right across the page. And then you get a note saying the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses don't have verses 9 through 20. And then verses 9 through 20 are printed, but this time in italics different from the rest of Mark's gospel. So suddenly we're reading this thing about the resurrection of Jesus and how these women were so afraid that they ran away and they didn't say anything to anybody and we're ripped out of the story and asking a question like, what, how does Mark's gospel end? Well, I want us to feel the full force of that ending and what it has to say to people like us who deal every day with fear and the temptation to, to let fear distract us from faithfulness to the resurrected Lord Jesus. And, and I, I want to do that over the next two weeks, a sermon that will talk about how Jesus rescues us from fear next week, and then the week after that, how Jesus rescues us from despair. I want to unpack that, but but before we can get to all of that, we, we really have to deal with all these extra squiggles on the page. Why is it that you get all this extra action at the end of Mark chapter 16 in your Bible? And what do we do with that? And why in the world does it matter? So let's take some time to wrestle with that question today. And then we'll come back in the next couple of weeks to talk about how Jesus rescues us from fear. So we'll start here today. Why does this matter? We're going we're gonna to have a house sandwich today. You name a sandwich after what's in the middle, right? You don't have a grilled bread sandwich. You have a grilled cheese sandwich. And so this is a house sandwich. Why does it matter? How does Mark's gospel end? And why does it matter again? So we'll put the how in the middle, but we're start, starting with the why. Why does this matter? Here's why it matters. There are three basic religious inclinations of the human heart. Moralism, humanism, and the gospel. I'll keep saying that because I don't think that's going to change no matter how long I live. <laughs> I 
thinks that's the way the human heart is wired. I think that's what history shows us. It, it's, it's where we live philosophically in our era. There's, there's this moralistic sort of stream of religion that says, I can impress God and I can show him that I'm better than you by doing better, doing more. There's humanism that says we're not really sure God is out there, but we're going to try to do our best to improve ourselves and improve the world around us anyway. And then there's the gospel that's not like either of those. That says we can't rescue ourselves, we can't improve ourselves, we need what God has done through Christ. That's good news because God has sent his son to be our redeemer. Well, those three shapes of religion lead to three very different views of what the Bible is. The first is this, moralism says the Bible is God's rules for human performance. The Bible is a collection of how you know you're impressing God by keeping the rules. The Bible is your source for proving that you're better than everybody else, so God will love you more than them. That's legalism, that's moralism. And that's the way the Bible is viewed from that framework. And if, if, if your neighbors know that you're a Christian and they think you're not very kind or thoughtful, they assume this is what you believe. They assume that you're a moralist, that you're a legalist. They assume that you look down on them because they're rule breakers and you're better than they are because you're a rule keeper. And so you and I have to live lives that say absolutely the opposite. There should be no, no hint of arrogance in the way that we live with and treat our neighbors. There should be no hint. Of, are there rules to obey? Did God give commandments? Yes, absolutely. But that obedience is not coming from a sense of performing so that God will love us more than other people. It's coming from a very different place, gratitude for the redemption that God has given us. Well, there's another view of the Bible. We're going to eliminate that one. Humanism says that the Bible is a collection of human traditions for human improvement. How do you work toward human improvement in light of the traditions collected in the Bible? Well, you have two options. If you think the traditions in the Bible will keep us from moving forward toward improvement, you reject the Bible and its traditions. If you think the traditions in the Bible will help us toward improvement, then you embrace those traditions. But you've got a vision for human improvement and you analyze the Bible in light of that vision and you keep some stuff and you reject other stuff. And that's how humanism views the Bible. It's a collection of human traditions, may or may not be helpful. We're in charge, we have to choose. And um, that's really what's behind this um, quote from a Canadian pastor named Paul Carter that's on, on our worship guide this week. He talks about a story that's told about the Bible. He doesn't use the language of humanism, but the story he's talking about is exactly this. Right? It's a story that goes like this. When you read the Bible, you don't know what God said or what Jesus said or what the apostles said. You know what somebody else wanted you to think God said. There were people in the ancient world who wanted us to think this way, and so they put these words on Jesus' lips. Jesus didn't really talk like this. And, and that's the story that humanism tells about the Bible. People added stuff. They took stuff out, pick and choose. 
because we're not sure God's really out there. And if he is, there's, we're not sure that he could communicate in a reliable way to us. There's two ways of viewing the Bible. Is it a book of rules so that we can perform better? Is it a book of traditions and we now have to evaluate and choose? The gospel says something very different. The Bible is God's gift for human redemption. Very different way of approaching the scriptures. And that's why it's important to wrestle with words like this. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah wrote those words 700 years before Jesus was born. Jesus said something very much like that just a few days before his death. Mark chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is not the perspective of someone saying, you get to pick and choose which of these traditions fit your vision for human improvement. It's also not the perspective of someone saying, this is about performance. This is about redemption. If you read Isaiah chapter 40 in its context, it's words of comfort being spoken to people who live in and around Jerusalem. And armies from Babylon are coming to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. They are coming to destroy the city. The whole kingdom of Judah is going to be uprooted, enslaved, taken to Babylon. The exile is coming as a penalty for the sin of the people. And here is God saying, I will redeem you. Your failure will not be the last word in the story. The world is about to collapse around you. Everything going on around you in this world is going to make you think I've forgotten you, but I will redeem you and my promises will stand forever. And Jesus says something very similar. If you read Mark 13 in its context, he's saying in about four decades, the year 70 A.D. is when this happened. Jesus spoke this prediction around the year 33 A.D. The temple is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be ransacked. This time not Babylonian armies but Roman ones. It is going to look like your whole world just got turned upside down and set on fire. It's going to be a time of panic and anxiety and fear with people running for the hills. And Jesus says, I want you to know. I want you to know that I'm going to finish the work of redemption that I have started. One day I will return and there will be an end to wars and rumors of wars. Until then, there will be many dark days. These promises about the faithfulness of God in his word and the fact that his words stand forever, they're not part of a book that's meant to make us improve ourselves or save ourselves through our performance. They're part of a story that says, your whole world is collapsing, but I will not let go of you. 
I will redeem you. I will finish what I have started. And this promise will never pass away. The grass might fade and the the flowers will die and wilt and wither. But I won't. My promises won't. Now, this is significant, isn't it? Because by the time Jesus said this about his words not passing away, that promise of God back in Isaiah 40 was 700 years old. Jesus was part of a tradition that said you can count on God's word to be real and to be there. A solid foundation for centuries and centuries and centuries. Why does it matter that we think carefully and deeply about how Mark's gospel ends? Well, it matters because the promises of God's word fulfilled through Jesus, they're a gift we can trust even when we live under a shadow of fear because of what's happening in the world around us, we trust the promises of God's Word. Not because they help us toward our vision for human improvement. Not because they give us ammunition for proving that we can outperform everybody else. But because they are God's gift for our redemption. Asking questions about how Mark's gospel ends should not undermine these promises or our faith and trust in the gift that God has given through his word. All right, that's why. How? How does Mark's gospel end? All right, you've got some options. We're going to pretend for a moment that this is the uh, last page of an ancient manuscript of Mark's gospel. In fact, it's the first page of an ancient manuscript of 2 Corinthians, but work with me, okay? Um, If you were to look at ancient manuscripts of Mark's gospel, and for for our purposes today, we're we're going to say 7th century and older, right? you would find some that end this way. They have verse 8, ending just as Stacy read it for us earlier. They went out, fled from the tomb, trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's all you would see. No other words on the page. Or maybe you get a mark saying this, this is the end of Mark's gospel, and then you might get the beginning of Luke's gospel. But Mark just ends with verse 8 in some of those ancient manuscripts. How many? How old are they? Hold your horses. We'll get there in a minute. First, big picture. If you looked at others, you'd find verse 8 and something else called the shorter ending of Mark's gospel. It doesn't have a number. I call it verse 8.5 because it doesn't have a number. But if you saw it, you'd think it was just continuing uh, verse 8. And, and it's this sort of very short, kind of um, 
hey, they went and told the apostles, and then the proclamation of eternal salvation went forward from east to west, so that the, mar- the gospel ends on kind of a more upbeat note than they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. You get this sort of short, sweet, one-sentence conclusion. So in one uh, ancient manuscript, you find that. Verse 8, and then kind of verse 8 and a half, wrapping it up on a positive, upbeat note. In a few manuscripts, you find verse 8, and then our shorter ending, what we call verse 8 and a half, and then verses 9 through 20. You find all of it together. Lots of words on the page. Not very many manuscripts have that. And then in some, you get verse 8 and then verses 9 through 20, and that little shorter ending, the verse 8 and a half part, that's just gone. Right, so those are kind of your four options as you're reading through ancient manuscripts, as I know you do frequently. Um, okay, your pastor is a nerd. Um, I, had, I had never been to Washington, D.C. until a couple years ago, and I landed in D.C. like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I... I went as quickly as I could to the Museum of the Bible so that I could take pictures of these old Greek manuscripts and then translate them when I got home. And it's really fun. Um, And there are like five floors to that uh, museum, and I didn't even make it through one of them. So I can't wait to go back sometime. So you may not do this, but some of us do sit around thinking about things like this. Well, the, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, is the only translation of the Bible I've found that includes all of these options. If you looked at the NRSV at the top of the, this, uh, it's, it's verse 8 printed there. And then you get a sentence saying, the shorter ending of Mark. And this little one-sentence addition in those double brackets, a way of the editors saying, we don't, really th- we don't think Mark wrote these words. And then you get the longer ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20, and, and they're in double brackets as well. So if you wanted to see all of these possible endings on the same page in an English translation, the only one I'm aware of is the New Revised Standard Version. By the way, if you're not familiar with a website called Bible Gateway, uh, look that up. It's a great way to, to uh, look at lots of different translations uh, in lots of different languages, probably 30 or 40 different languages, and, and um, you could look some of this up there as well. Um, well, how would we sort through which of these four options is the one that Mark actually wrote, right? Well, verse 8 is in every option. There are no manuscripts that leave verse 8 out. So, Verse 8 is part of Mark's gospel. There aren't questions about that. The questions are, is there anything else that Mark wrote after that? Did he write a shorter one-sentence, tidy, wrap it up? Did he write that plus some other stuff? Or did he write the longer stuff but not that shorter option? How would we answer that question? Well, we'd answer that question a couple ways. We look at ancient data. Uh, We want to look at ancient Greek manuscripts. We want to know how old they are. We want to look at translations, translations uh, of the Greek New Testament into Latin, 
into Syriac, into Coptic, which is an Egyptian language with multiple different dialects like Sahidic and Bohiric, and we want to look at Armenian and Ethiopian translations. And suddenly, if we're doing this work, we have this like vivid reminder that, that the gospel went global really quickly. Side note, right? We're really not talking about that at this moment. But if you do this work, you have to reckon with all these different languages that, that the gospels got translated into within just a couple hundred years. And you start to see the gospel spreading to every continent, to Asia, to Africa, making its way up into what now we call Eastern Europe. And you have to reckon with the fact that, um, that Christianity was an Eastern and African religion way before it was a Western one. And so one of the reasons I run to museums and take pictures of these old manuscripts is because it reminds me that that's the church I belong to. I belong to a church that was always meant to be worldwide and was always meant to include speakers of multiple languages and therefore representatives of multiple cultures and ethnicities. And that's not something the church is just finding out in the 21st century. That's part of our heritage of who we are. So we'd want to look at all that data from the ancient world. What do the early church fathers say? When they quote Mark 16, do they stop at the end of verse 8 or do they keep going? Do they make any comments about discussions over this issue? Turns out they do. We want to look at all that data. And then we want to look at a, um, a couple of other things. Let me run past those slides. Logical and literary arguments. We want to ask questions like, over time, do documents tend to get longer or shorter? And over time, do documents tend to get more clear or less clear? If somebody's going to change a document, are they going to do it to make it more confusing and obscure and harder to follow? Or are they going to change it in a way that makes it easier to follow? Well, that's a logical argument, right? We can't get inside the mind of ancient scribes, but we can use that kind of logical question. And we can ask questions like, hey, if I'm looking at that longer version of Mark's gospel, does it sound like Mark? Does Mark say y'all, and all of a sudden the longer stuff starts to say yuns? That would make us scratch our heads and wonder if Mark really wrote that, right? We'd do that kind of deep digging. And uh, as we ask those kinds of questions, it, it turns out that there are really only two strong contenders uh, because that uh, verse 8, the little red box, right, that looked like this, that's, um, you only find that in... Um, this particular arrangement of verse 8, they said nothing to no one because they were afraid. And then verse 8 and a half, that kind of tidy, quick bow. You find that only in one manuscript, and it's not in Greek. It's in Latin. If Mark wrote those words in Greek, it's highly unlikely that they would have completely disappeared from the Greek manuscript tradition by the 4th century. So there's not a lot of strong evidence pointing in this direction. Um, this construction 
verse 8, that verse 8 and a half, and then verses 9 through 20. You only find that in about five Greek manuscripts, but the earliest of those is from the seventh century. That's not very strong because we find evidence for these other endings, the one that looks like this, verse 8 and then verses 9 through 20. We find that in a lot of fifth century documents. We don't have to wait to the seventh century for this to start showing up. We, we even find a couple of second century sources not Greek manuscripts of, of Mark, but kind of commentaries on Mark. Or one is a Syriac translation of Mark that includes those verses 9 through 20 in its translation. Second century. That's a whole lot earlier than seventh century. So as we look at this kind of data, we, we start to see there are really only two strong contenders, and, and that's the verse 8 is the ending of Mark's gospel, or maybe verses 9 through 20 were supposed to be there as well, written by Mark. Now, when we start to ask a different kind of question, not just looking at the ancient data, but asking those logical questions, is it more likely that someone found Mark's gospel ending this way on this note of kind of mystery and fear, and then added some details that you would find in Mark and John and Matthew? to create a longer ending for a more positive, upbeat note to end on? Or is it more likely that Mark wrote this, the longer ending, and somebody said, let's make it shorter and more mysterious and harder to understand. Let's make it end on a more sour, downbeat note. It's far more likely that Mark ended this way and that very early on, Scribes began to notice that doesn't sound like the ending of all the other Gospels. Let's put together some details from Matthew and Luke and John and make a, an ending for Mark's Gospel that might work better in early worship. And so it's interesting that in a lot of manuscripts that look like this, you find asterisks and kind of ancient footnotes out in the side saying there's debate over whether Mark wrote verses 9 through 20. In other words, as early as the second and third and fourth centuries, Christians were saying, we are wrestling with this problem. Why is that important? It is important because many people will say, from this kind of humanistic perspective, there is deception here. Most Christians are ignorant of this issue. People, this is proof that people just added to the Bible however they wanted. And nobody until the 20th century started thinking this through in a serious way. It's absolutely false. There are indications in these ancient manuscripts that our brothers and sisters in Jesus from many continents and many cultures were already wrestling with this question. Why? Why does any of it matter? All right, I'm going to answer that question one more time, but first wrap up a few things. I'm convinced that this is the way Mark's gospel ends. I'm not persuaded that verses 9 through 20 were written by Mark. Why? Well, it has to do with the concentration of vocabulary that's found in those verses that are found nowhere else in the New Testament and nowhere else in Mark's gospel. It doesn't read like Mark. Mark doesn't write like that. He doesn't talk like that. Is that definitive proof that I'm right and everybody else is wrong? No, it's not. But it's a pretty strong argument. 
also the, the earliest Greek manuscripts end this way. They're only about a century earlier than those that end this way, but still, that's worth something. So I'm going to preach over the next couple of weeks as though Mark's gospel ends like this, as though the ending of Mark's gospel is one of silent fear. Why? Well, come back next week. We'll talk more about that. But that's the perspective that I will uh, operate from. What we're doing this morning is called textual criticism, by the way. It is um, it's a process of reconstructing an old document by comparing all the copies you have access to. So imagine somebody wants you to um, say what you know about an Italian woman named Lisa Gerardini. She's from Florence. So you could go there and try to find her if you wanted. Problem is, she was born in 1497. You're never going to have an opportunity to meet Lisa. You will never have access to her. Unless you ask somebody to make a pretty darn good copy of her. Right? A very skilled artist. In this case, here's Mark's gospel. The original Not a translation, not a copy, but the original copy of Mark's gospel once existed in this world. Have we discovered it? No. Can we know anything about it? Oh, yeah, we can. Why? Because a whole lot of people who loved the Lord Jesus took the time and effort to make very good copies of that original. And then... If you didn't have a chance to uh, go to France and see um, the Mona Lisa, La Gioconda, hanging in the Louvre, well, guess what? People take very high-quality photographs of that. Would you rather go to France and see the original? Yep, I would. But if I don't get to, well, there are lots of good copies out there. And, well, they're expensive, so it's cheaper to make a whole lot more black and white photocopies and start passing them out. The point is this. Don't let anybody tell you that Christians don't really have the Bible because we don't have the original copies of the biblical books. In the same way that if anybody tried to say to you, that woman had three heads, you would say, no, she didn't. How do you know that? Did you ever see her, meet her in person? You have no access to her. But we can know a lot about that woman because of the faithfulness of how communication works in the world. When God said, my words will never pass away, when Jesus said, my words will never pass away, he knew he was speaking in a world where communication works so well. That 700 years after Isaiah wrote something down, Jesus could stand on it. And Jesus knew he was speaking into a world where communication works so well that that 40 years from now, you'll be able to remember what I said on this day, even while your world is falling apart around you. Can we know what God said to us in those original documents, even though we don't have access to them? Well, it's not true to say we don't have access to them. We do have access to them through all these 
copies that were made over years and years. Why does any of this matter? Well, it matters because of snakes in the basement. The basement is in a church where I was asked to speak. And the snakes come from Mark chapter 16, verse 18. Again, I don't think Mark wrote these words. I don't think they're part of the Bible. But it says, you know, that if the followers of Jesus pick up snakes with their hands and drink poison, it won't hurt them. And so as I'm talking, I'm a guest speaker. I've been invited in by the church's pastor because they were wanting to learn about other religions and other denominations. They weren't Presbyterian. They wanted to hear from a Presbyterian pastor. I told them my view of Scripture. I believe the Bible is this gift from God for human redemption that it's reliable and it has authority and that we can trust everything it says. And somebody immediately put up their hand in the basement of this church and asked about snakes and said, therefore, you mean to tell me you think that you can get bitten by a snake and it won't hurt you? And I said, well, it sounds like you're referring to Mark chapter 16, verse 18. He says, yes, I am. And I said, well, actually, I don't think that's part of the Bible. I don't think Mark wrote those words. And he was kind of shocked. What do you mean? You said you think the Bible is trustworthy. See, his experience was that you have two options, moralism and humanism. University town, rural setting. The rural setting meant the common, most public version of Christianity was very moralistic. We're better than you because your hair's too long or your skirts are too short or something. We're better than you because of the rules. Oppressive rules that are restrictive. And the people in this church had said, well, if, if the other option is humanism, we're taking humanism, where we get this freedom of choice and we have to evaluate what traditions are best to help improve the world around us. And that's the only two ways of being Christian we know. And if there's this third way, that says the Bible is God's gift for human redemption. And because of that, we believe the gospel will cause us to treasure that gift so much that we will have high reverence for God's word. We will want to sort carefully through questions about, are we treating merely humans, human words as though they were God's? Are we treating God's words as though they were merely human? We want to think through those questions carefully. Why? Because we love this gift that our Father has given us and which he says to us will never, ever fade away. It will stand forever. And we believe that. And so we recognize we're not the first generation to wrestle with the hard work of interpreting the Bible. We have brothers and sisters spread across continents and cultures and time and space and language and ethnic groups who have been asking these same questions. Why? Because we've all lived in a world that's constantly, constantly in upheaval around us. We've all lived under a shadow of fear, some invading army 
is going to turn our world upside down. And so we've all believed that God's word is a gift that we can trust. We do the hard work of going over to France, getting as close as we can to the original, learning as much as we can about it. Why? Because we know we can't redeem ourselves through our performance and we know we can't improve ourselves. We need Jesus to redeem us. We do the hard work because we love the word, because we need the Savior. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we don't talk about these things every week, partly because it's a sin to bore people, (laughs) partly because there really aren't that many places in the Bible that questions like this come up. 97% of the time in the New Testament, there is no question about what the original wording is. Similar in the Old Testament, because you gave us your word in a world where communication works, and it works well, and where people who love you love your word enough to honestly wrestle with hard questions and details so that we can hear the truth about the way you rescue us. Lord, make us love your gospel and convince us that we can't know your gospel apart from your word. Make us faithful to all that you have taught us. We pray in your name. Amen.